0: From the holiday closeout studios of PBS 39 at the PPL Public Media Center in the always Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA, it's time for another festive 75% off hour of chemical free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Do you still have poinsettias and cut Christmas trees hanging around your house? On today's show, we'll reveal how you can perennialize those poinsettias and make that tree for the birds. Plus, the story of the seed farm, a farm that grows farmers. And lots of your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and numbingly nuanced necessitations. So keep your eyes and or ears here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than a nut batch nest in your Fraser fur for the 4th of July. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden from PBS39 in the Christmas city of Bethlehem, PA. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up a little later in the show, we will talk about the seed farm, a farm that grows farmers. We'll also tell you what to do if you still have any poinsettias and cut Christmas trees laying around. They can be put to good use. But first, we're going to take some of your useful phone calls at 833-727-9588. Emma, welcome to You Bet Your Garden.
1: Thank you.
0: Well, thank you, Emma. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I'm just ducky, thanks for asking. Where is Emma doing great?
1: Uh, Kutztown.
0: In Kutztown. Ring baloney mm-hmm. once, ring baloney twice. Kutztown, <laughs> Kutztown, Kutztown, ain't that nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great little town here in the, in the Lehigh Valley. What can we do for Emma in Kutztown?
1: Um, I was calling to see what your opinion was on starting tomato seeds inside. I have tried it a few times, but I always seem to be late. Uh, my tomatoes always seem to feel like they're ready for transplant in July.
0: Right. And
1: I never seem to time it right.
0: I have a, a kind of a, a unique system because I'm on the road. Uh, most of February, you know, talking around the country, that's the big time for garden talks. So I never get an early start, but I make sure everything at home is set up. I have a nice, what's called a sterile mix, a soil-free mix, um, seed-starting soil. You never use any garden soil um, to start seeds in. You buy a professional mix. And the lighter the bag is, the better the results are going to be. And I assemble old six-packs from when I have bought plants in the past. You know, I know people like to start them in egg cartons or yogurt containers or stuff. But the six-packs, the plastic six-packs, are the best thing. That's why the professionals use them. And they are plastic, and they already exist. So the only way we can make their footprint less is to keep reusing them. And, again, they, get, they do the perfect results. And oh. I have my lights hung mm. and ready. And then we do the Philadelphia Flower Show, where I will appear on Wednesday of the show um, in, in March. You can go to theflowershow.com to see the details. And as soon as the Flower Show is over, which is generally around March 10th or March 11th, that's when I start my Seeds. Because the basic rule of thumb is you want to put out transplants that are six to eight weeks old when the nighttime temperatures are reliably in the 50s. Now, this is the tropical plants. This is melons, peppers, cucumbers, tomatoes. Um, The early crops like lettuce and peas, they can go out super early. That's a whole other topic. But generally, I like to start my seeds two months before I anticipate putting them out. So for you, you know, you figure maybe May 15th it's going to be warm enough at night to put them out safely, maybe June 1st. So you start them around March 15th, and that's good. Now, that's more than six weeks, but you have to allow seven to ten days for germination, So what I do, and this is, you know, seed starting is much harder than gardening. It took me much longer to be a better seed starter than it did an outdoor gardener. So, for instance, if you're not good at it, don't be ashamed of buying your plants. Uh, You know, buy them from an organic farm or or a local sustainable farmer. Uh, But if you want to do it, again, you need the professional supplies. You can't use garden soil. Uh, You can't use kindergarten tools like the egg cartons. Uh, You want to use the old six-packs. Any gardener you know will have a million old six-packs. They'll be glad to lend you. So when you're ready and you got your seeds and your stuff all assembled, you fill the six-packs with the soil-free mix, and then you sit them in water, maybe with a brick on top because they're going to just try to jump up and, and bend over. So... Keep them in the water until they're totally saturated, and then put them in something like a a baking tray, something not a huge lip on it, but something that's going to hold the water that comes off, and assemble the six packs on this, and then sow two seeds in each cell. Don't sow the seeds and then try to put them in the water. That's going to be terrible. That's going to have a bad result. So you get, the, you get the soil-free mix saturated first. You put two seeds in each cell. And then when you got everything set up, you put plastic wrap, like saran wrap, over the top of everything. And, and now you don't need lights. You just need to have a heating pad underneath or keep them in a warm room and check them every day. When you see the very first sprout in any of the cells, take all the plastic off get rid of it, and now they need to be under bright light. The easiest way to do this is with a simple shop light. Um, Four-foot-long, two four-foot-long tubes in a four-foot-long fixture. You can get them real cheap at any home store. Um, You can either use fluorescent tubes, which have improved tremendously over the year, or there's new-age LEDs um, that fit the same fixtures, So I I still use my old fluorescent lights because I bought a case of them. (laughs) And the thing that people don't realize is you want the plants to be an inch or less away from the bulbs. If it's this far up, if it's like a foot up, they're not getting any of the light. The lumens decrease amazingly fast. But you keep them up close to the light. And the light won't burn them because fluorescence and LEDs are both cool. So you're not exposing them to heat or anything like that. So um, you continue to do this as the new sprouts come up. After they develop what's called their first true leaves, not the funny looking ones on the bottom, but Mm -hmm. the real leaves of the plant, then you want to go around to all of the cells and using a pair of uh, scissors, you want to snip off the weakest looking one. That's that's the one in the cell. You got to plant two because sometimes you won't get full germination, but you can't grow two or like when I started out seven in (laughs) in one cell and hope for the best. And you don't want to pull it out because that'll disturb the roots of the other plant. You want to snip off the bad looking one, which is often the tallest one. You don't want tall. Hmm. You want short and stocky. That's the healthiest plant. And that's always a, a measure of light. And then when you're about three weeks into your journey, you want to feed the plants with a very gentle dilute liquid fertilizer. You know, instead of watering regularly, once a week you want to water with a dilute solution of liquid fertilizer, but not fish fertilizer. I did that. My mm. wife wanted to kill me. The house smelled no. like a fish hatchery for weeks afterwards. Oh, no. Yeah, so... um And then you continue to grow them up, moving the light up as they grow so that um, it's always close to the tops. Now, if you're growing peppers and tomatoes together, they're going to be different heights. Don't worry about that. Put the peppers up on books or something. But try to keep the tops of each plant up close to the light. And then really you're just waiting until the 10-day forecast doesn't show any cold nights. Ideally, okay. every night is in the 50s. If there's a 49 in there and everything around it looks good, that's fine. People worry about the last frost date. But tomatoes and peppers are tropical plants. They have no sense of humor about nights in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And if you rush them, they'll be two or three weeks behind the ones that cowards planted on the first when the nights were reliably warm. Okay. And, and that's basically it. If you go to our website, youbetyourgarden.org, and click on answers to all your garden problems and look up seed starting, you can follow this step by step as I've developed it over the years. Uh, but the thing where people fail is the lights. You know, they think they can grow yeah. them in a sunny windowsill, and then they grow tomatoes that are eight feet tall with two leaves on them. As the plants desperately try to stretch towards the light that doesn't exist.
1: I've had that happen.
0: Yeah. So artificial light, it really doesn't cost anything. You get beautiful plants. And if you get good at this, swap up to a four-tube, four-foot-long fixture. Then your friends will ask you to grow their starts (laughs) for them.
1: Awesome.
0: All right. Great. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Good luck, Emma. 833-727-9588. 833-727-9588. Harry, welcome to Your yes, Garden.
2: Great. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you, Harry. How are you, sir?
2: I'm doing good.
0: I'm in uh, Tidewater, Virginia. All right. What can we do for Harry in Tidewater? Well, I have a crepe myrtle
2: tree that we got from the one of the Arbor Day things where they send you the little twigs. This thing has grown. It's the only one that survived out of the dozen or so that we got. It's. Uh, I've added an addition to the garage. I need to move this thing, and now it's probably about 20 feet tall. Ha! Ha!
0: That's probably (laughs) probably a record because I know they can send out, uh, like, 20 trees in a regular – first-class envelope. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And I'll tell you something. I really like the tree, too. My wife's in love with the tree since we grew it from just a, you know, basically a little stick that came in the mail.
0: What color are, are the flowers? Orange is pink. That's a nice shade for that tree. Yeah. And it's a, it's a solid tree form. It's not the multi-branching form. No, no,
2: it is a multi-branch.
0: Oh, okay. You know, yeah. most people do prune these trees back annually uh, to try to keep them in a workable size. Did you say you want to move a twenty foot tree? Yeah, it's 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 the, the, the branches, Are you a stockbroker? <laughs> no, no, no. But but
2: inside where I have lots of people with, with, with big equipment, so it's not a the the I just want to make sure I can do it safely. The, the branches on this thing are, are about, you know, two, maybe three inches around and there's five or six of them. Mm-hmm. It's the height. Yes, it's the height. It's and the it's, height. They're very thin at the top.
0: It's the height. Um, For instance, have you ever bought a live Christmas tree as opposed to a cut one?
2: Yeah, it's been a few years, but yes.
0: Yeah. Do you remember how cut ones weigh about seven pounds? And (laughs) then you moved your lived one and you realized the root ball weighed a couple of hundred pounds? Right. For you to successfully move this tree, you need a root ball the equivalent size, um, maybe five times larger than the old Christmas tree one. You need an enormous root ball. Now, I'm going to get you in trouble because I'm going to say this can be done. Okay. It has often been successfully done. Uh, If you've ever been to the Hearst Castle in Central California, all of the magnificent trees, um, as you climb up the slope to get to the mansion, they were all brought in full size, 30, 40, 50 feet. Oh, wow. Well, Hearst had more money than God. When God needed that's a loan, great. he went to Hearst. You know? yeah. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking the equipment here is a a giant scoop, kind of like an ice cream scoop, a cage that goes into the ground and lifts the root ball out of the ground. These are on trucks, often the size of a small crane. And right. obviously... As, as with a crane, they need room to move around. Now, when you take a tree down this size, you don't need that much sideways room because you're going to be cutting it down from the top and dropping down pieces at a time. Yeah. But, you know, this is like a ladder. When you get the thing out of the ground, it has to be able to turn in all directions. So do you, have I, the, do you even yeah, have the have, clearance to do that? Oh, yeah. Yeah,
2: I have plenty of room for that. And actually, I have a, a nursery right across the street.
0: They might have the right equipment. Uh, do they sell yes. mature trees?
2: Well, I, it's a uh, commercial. They, it's not a, a retail nursery. It's a, a wholesale nursery. But I, I, I know the owner. Okay. I, but I, and they, I see lots of trees planted. Nothing quite as big as ours. But so you mean they, they would. If they've got the equipment, that would be the way to do it, have them come over and just scoop it right out of the ground?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, Every year at the Philadelphia Flower Show, for instance, there's always a couple of really stately trees. And because I used to be an exhibitor and I speak at the Flower Show every year, I like to drop in during construction time. And you see these gigantic machines on the floor. Um, oh, wow. bringing in the trees. And again, the root ball is, is the size of an old Volkswagen. I mean, it is, wow. it is enormous. Um, but again, it can be done. It is often done. Uh, people okay. who are wealthy, who are creating a new home out of nothing, will often have mature trees brought in. And these have a pretty good survival rate. A pro- pre- professional is doing it. You'd want to do it in the winter when the tree is fully dormant. Um, You'd want to do it during a cold stretch. You don't want it to warm up during the transportation time. But this giant scoop would lift it up out of the ground, and then there would be an extension on the truck to lay the canopy down. And then they would drive it slowly over to the new hole, drop it in get rid of anything they had wrapped around the root system to protect it during transport, and then backfill that hole with with the same soil they took out. You never improve oh. the soil in the planting hole.
2: Okay, that's what I was going to ask if you did anything.
0: Do you keep it watered even during winter? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. After transport, it is essential that anytime you don't get rain or snow during a week, that you let a hose drip at the base of that tree. But I mean drip, like an annoying sink. Oh, okay. For a solid 24 hours. Okay, great. Yeah, don't water it for half an hour and then stop. Really saturate the soil. Um, And that's immediately after you move it, or in the first time, you know, that's not absolutely freezing outside. And yeah. then every week thereafter, if you don't get some rain or snow. And then again, especially in the spring, if things start to dry out, keep right. watering that tree as if it was a new tree because it will be.
2: Oh, that's perfect. Good. I'm, I'm really happy that I, that I, I can't. You're really going to do this. this? I think so, yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. I, we we got to have pictures. <laughs> okay. we, we have to have pictures of this.
2: Okay, no problem.
0: All right. You got to, yeah, you'll be famous. All right, <laughs> great. <laughs> All right, good luck, Harry. It is time for a very special interview segment about a farm that grows farmers, the Seed Farm in Veracruz, PA, here in the Lehigh Valley. In the studio with me, we have Lindsay Parks, who is executive director of the Seed Farm, and one of their talented graduates, Michelle Kensler, who runs the Periwinkle Flower Farm. Ladies, thanks for coming on uh, You Bet Your Garden.
3: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: So, Lindsay, uh, first start with you. When I first uh, was aware that there was a place called the Seed Farm in Veracruz, I thought, oh, you grow out seed. You're, you know, doing, you know, sustainable corns and sunflowers (laughs) and stuff like that. Um, There must be a lot of confusion about that.
3: There is. Actually, the history of the Seed Farm is that it used to grow seeds to, for commercial sales. So a lot of people still think of the seed farm as um, a place where seeds are produced. But in fact, we are growing future farmers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was my pleasure to speak at one of your spring plant sales a few years back. And I love the work you're doing. One of the reasons I wanted to have uh, you two on today is this is one of those things that should be replicated everywhere in the country. Uh, we know that older farmers are retiring. A lot of times their family doesn't want to take on the farm. Plus, I mean, there's always that terrible situation, right? You're going to your kids and say, do you want to make $60,000 a year, or do you want to sell the land for $8.7 you know, right. and split it between you? Mm-hmm. So we need people who are passionate about farming and really want to choose that. And a lot of times that's not the family, it's the new generation. Right. So, Michelle, you are one of the esteemed uh, graduates well. <laughs> of the Seed Farm. Uh, when did you train there?
4: Well, I actually trained at a different farm uh, locally that l- rented land from the Rodell Institute in Kutztown. Um, but I contacted Lindsay and the seed farm last year, mm-hmm. a little bit, I guess maybe February last year, about renting the facilities, renting land um, as a place to grow my business with a lot less overhead than owning my own property.
0: So not only does the seed farm train and encourage future farmers Uh, but you can lease a plot of land and have your farm at the seed farm.
3: Right. You can lease a plot of land. You can lease infrastructure space. You can lease tractor hours. So um, the problem with getting into farming, especially for somebody who didn't grow up on a farm, is that it can— You don't
0: have the land. You don't have the equipment.
3: Right, and the costs can be prohibitively high, and it can keep somebody out of farming. So what we're trying to do is lower those barriers to entry by providing affordable access.
0: So this is almost exactly like the new concept of co-working, where, you know, you'll go to a building and instead of having an office that you lease or a floor or something like that, you have kind of this floating workspace where you can get out of your house and do your work and you're with like-minded people. That's, mm-hmm. that's the way of future starting businesses right now. And it sounds right. almost exactly like the seed farm.
3: It is. It is. And that's why we call it an incubator, because it operates like a lot of the other um, small business incubators that you see out there.
0: So, Michelle, your business is Periwinkle Flower Farm. That's right. You just grow periwinkles?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, just fields of blue flowers. No, Um, the name doesn't really pertain to the crop, but it kind of has a personal significance to me. But I grow cut flowers, so um, seasonally growing um, bouquets that reflect the time of year. You know what we can grow here in Zone uh, 6B. Um, and I supply different farm stands. Uh, this year I'm doing a CSA, a community-supported agricultural kind of um, business model. Okay, so that okay. i, so I yeah. got to stop you there
0: because when CSAs first started, um, they were like the early hippie co-ops. Sure. You know, you would subscribe in advance. You'd put in a couple of hours either working at the farm or packing up the, the harvest or delivering it. And then you would share in the weekly harvest right. of that farm. And now it's progressed to obviously much more sophisticated methods. You know, generally you you buy a share in the farm and then your weekly produce is delivered to you or there's a couple of centralized pickup right. spots. I did not know there was a CSA for cut flowers.
4: Wasn't it a great idea? Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want fresh flowers every week, you know? So – And it helps the farmer, whether they're growing uh, fruit, vegetables, flowers, um, meat, uh, to have some capital in the winter when you're actually outlaying most of your investment. You know, that's when you need the money.
0: Well, Lindsay, isn't this more the, you know, the CSA model is more like even conventional agriculture, where the crop is essentially sold before it's planted?
3: Right. And it's very important, again, for small farmers who are just entering farming and Are operating with limited capital.
0: How many people who've come to you have crashed and burned because they love kohlrabi and they Mm -hmm. decide to start farming and they put in an acre of kohlrabi and at the end of the year they've lost the farm, they've lost the house, but they've got a shed full of kohlrabi.
3: I'm happy to say that that (laughs) has never happened.
0: (laughs) And uh, I have friends very close to the seed farm that you must know very well, the DeVault's uh, Pheasant Hill Farm. And they do farmer's markets now. They used to do CSAs. Now they do the Easton farmer's market especially. And they've kind of transitioned from that grow exactly what you have been told to deliver to growing a lot of things that they find interesting. And the farmer's market venue gives them the opportunity to do tastings. Right. So they have these crazy little cucumbers that nobody had ever seen there was no demand for them but they spent like a season here try these these are really good and now people come there for the little cucumbers and then get their lettuce and tomatoes on the side (laughs) so what have been your big hits outside of the the major venues so to speak Uh -uh. besides the
4: major ones yeah um i mean it's not a newbie, but everybody loves snapdragons, and mm-hmm. I think they're surprised to see the colors they come in and the length. Like you're used to seeing snapdragons grown as like the bedding height, you know, maybe you know 12. They can inches. be very dramatic. Yeah, 12. yeah. So that's a big favorite, and surprisingly very fragrant. A lot of people don't realize how many cut flowers still have fragrance because when you go to the grocery store, um, you don't often find those wonderful aromas coming from the flowers because those flowers have been grown far away and bred for durability Uh, not so much those old-fashioned scents and colors
0: oh yeah and and local local the freshness of local can't be beaten or described whether it's a a tomato that was harvested the day before or ultra local which is my favorite when you dig up the first potatoes of the season Mm -hmm. and you bite you wash one off right Mm -hmm. there in the garden and you bite into it people don't realize this juices come out of it like a tomato or an orange it's so moist Mm -hmm. and if people don't grow their own potatoes or buy them from a farmer the day they're out of the ground they've never tasted a potato
4: nope right and the same is totally true with flowers for sure and Not only are you getting what a flower is really supposed to look like and smell like, but you're getting, like you said, a much longer life, a much longer vase life. So hopefully, people will stop thinking of flowers as something to purchase just for special occasions and realize that there's something that is really going to improve their life on a day to day basis and last a really long time. So it's worth, you know, 10 bucks here, 10 bucks there for a nice bouquet.
0: Well, over the years, uh, you know, at first I only saw it at Whole Foods and the specialty markets. But now, I mean, even the, the, the big chains, most of them have something for you to put your cut flowers in, yeah. you yeah. know, when you're shopping. Because mm-hmm. people have gotten into the habit of fresh food and fresh flowers on right. the table.
4: Right, mm-hmm.
0: Lindsay, uh, are there other flower farmers that have come out of the seed farm?
3: We actually have another flower farm in the incubator (laughs) currently. Um, And you had mentioned the whole co-working concept. Um, We've seen in the incubator um, that the incubator farmers that are there at the same time do tend to collaborate and and work together and share knowledge. And so that's been a um, a really nice benefit of, of having that cooperative growing space.
0: Now, obviously, the big advantage that you have is you have a farm, Mm -hmm. you've got greenhouses, you've got equipment, and you have people there who, if the people need instruction, can help hold their hand. Who's your master farmer, whatever his title is?
3: Our farm manager is Brad Pollock. Right. And he's he's great.
0: And so where did, and you said it used to be a, quote, true seed farm, in Mm -hmm. that they would grow out seed for farmers or catalogs or stuff. Right. So... Who kind of owns this land now and how was it acquired?
3: Well, it was owned by the Seam family a long time ago. So it was known as the Seam Seed Farm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Say that eight times earlier. Really right?
3: <laughs> the Seam family sold the land to the county um, in the hopes that it would always be used as um, a place where new farmers would be encouraged to, to grow and, so
0: the, and learn. So the family that sold the land had the original idea.
3: Yes, I believe they did hmm
0: That's fabulous.
3: Yeah, yeah. So um, the county still owns the land, and they lease it to us, um, and they continue to provide support for us, which is really great. Um, it ties in nicely to the farmland preservation program that the county's really invested in.
0: And, you know, in the Lehigh Valley, especially in the area where you and I live and work, a tremendous threat of development all around, but... Still, a lot of farmland. Mm-hmm. Still, a lot of woodland. This is a crisis point. This is a tipping point.
3: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably being replicated in agricultural areas all over the country. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is kind of yet another option. Um, when Bob Rodale uh, was still alive, uh, from Rodale, you know, publications and Prevention and Organic Gardening magazine, he once uh, we were talking about sustainable farming and farmland preservation and he looked at me because bob would just say these things out of nowhere and he goes you know how to make a farm sustainable you know how to preserve the land turn a profit
3: yeah mm-hmm. exactly
0: so that has to be part of your training mm-hmm. and you know because it's it's one thing to be able to grow things well but boy i tell you back from my time at organic gardening and continuing on you bet your garden I wonder if the marketing skills aren't more than half of the job.
3: Right. Marketing, business planning, all the kind of dry, behind-the-scenes details are crucial. Right. Um, farming is a business, and it's it's really hard work, as Michelle can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we, we like to emphasize when somebody wants to join the incubator, we – look for more than just experience and an interest in farming. They have to have their plans together and be able to show us what they're planning to grow and why and um, who's going to buy their product. How are they going to sell it? And most importantly, what are you going to do when something goes wrong? Because plenty of things are going to go wrong over the course of the season. <laughs> so that whole risk management piece is really important.
0: That's a, that's a huge Hugely important point of of business lessons. When I was the editor of Organic Gardening magazine my first year, my publisher said exactly that. Okay, you have a good plan. What's plan B? (laughs) Plan A doesn't work. And I had like half a plan for plan B. She goes, eh, okay, what's plan C if plan B doesn't work? You need a backup for your backup for your backup. Mm -hmm. Um, Because most of us can learn to grow things. You know, plants are very agreeable once you stop fighting them and allow them to grow. Um, but business can be tough. Right. So it, it, how much of what you teach or mentor is, is business?
3: Well, considering that farming is a business, I suppose all of it.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> the people who come to you already consider that they're, they have some skill at growing plants.
3: Right. We like to see commercial growing experience, but we'll also consider um, if you have gardening experience for a few years, you can um, enter it like a, a smaller point, maybe with an eighth of an acre.
0: Right. It is. it It is. A, I, I have to say, I'd like to be able to say that, you know, farming is just like gardening, except on a scale of 100. Um, but I've actually worked on farms, and that's why I'm a gardener. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, Michelle, how... Um, how do you deliver your flowers? How do the people get them? Um, and how do you, how do you attract new customers?
4: Those are good questions. It's evolving. Um, last year was my first year growing flowers exclusively. Before that, I was more on the vegetable end of the mm-hmm. growing scale with some flowers. So this has been this has been a learning curve for me. Uh, last year, I had a couple different local farm stands that sold my product, I contacted some florists, so on a weekly basis I would sell wholesale. And then a lot of just direct from the farm um, sales, people would find me, <clears throat> excuse me, um, on social media. Mm-hmm. And that's become kind of the, oh, yeah. the marketing of the modern business world is social media, which I was reluctant to join, I'm kind of a, a shy person, so <laughs> it doesn't come naturally to me, but I really see its value. So that has kind of snowballed into me having um, workshops on the farm, um, collaborating with other local business people and doing pop-up sales at their businesses. So I've been able to reach a wide audience.
0: And mm-hmm. I, I honestly think from what I've seen over the years, the cut flower portion of especially sustainable farming and organic farming is growing madly.
4: Yeah, for sure.
0: So, Lindsay, how many, how many businesses have come out of the seed farms so far, approximately?
3: We are at, I believe, a total of 18. Not all of those are still in business, right? but um, you know, to be honest, we consider it to be a success even if somebody gets through a season or two and then decides that farming isn't going to work for them mm-hmm. because just based on the way that we operate, um, the very nature of operating a business in an incubator means that you haven't put all of your, you know, your life savings into it. It's, um, it's accessible, so if you decide to leave farming and go into something else, you generally haven't lost everything you
0: own. Oh, and before I let you guys go, you have an event coming up, Lindsay.
3: We do. Yeah, what's yes. your event? It's our annual fundraiser. Uh, it's the Farm to Feast dinner and auction.
0: Okay. Um, on Ooh.
3: January 27th. Okay. It's a Sunday. Um, it is a four-course dinner served in a barn.
0: Your pole um, barn?
3: It's not It's not on our farm for the first time this year. We're okay. actually, and this is why we're able to do it in January, we're, um, we were lucky enough to be able to hold the dinner at belgate farm um which is one of the oldest farms in lehigh county um and it is in Coopersburg. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: And obviously people can get details at theseedfarm.org? That's right. Okay. That's what's on
3: here.
0: Alright, Lindsay Parks is the executive director of the Seed Farm. Michelle Kensler is a graduate who runs Periwinkle Flower Farm out of the <laughs> Seed Farm and around the country. Everybody do this. It's a great idea. One eight three three seven two seven ninety-five eighty eight Paulina. Welcome to you, Bet Your Garden. Hello. Hello, Paulina. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. How are you?
0: I am just ducky. Thanks for asking. You sound like you're doing great. Where are you?
1: I'm in Port St. Lucie, Florida.
0: Um, is is it on the water?
1: Yep, we're on the east side of Florida near the
0: south coast. Okay, beautiful. Ah, Man, all of us want to be in Florida right now, as opposed to the Lehigh Valley. (laughs) All right, what can we do for you, Paulina?
1: Well, I actually had a question about composting. I was looking at tabletop kitchen composter, like compost bins for vegetable scraps. Right. And it's twenty dollars on Amazon, so I wanted to research and see if it was worth my money. And I came upon a TED Talk, and I think that was your TED Talk. Yeah. Um, and you were saying, you know, sort of like focus more on leaf scraps. So my question is, should I still try to collect, um, you know, your, your vegetable waste, other stuff in the kitchen? Like, would it be worth it?
0: Well, you know, especially in your location where there are few to no deciduous trees and the collection of brown material can be tricky, uh, you're almost forced into working with food waste as one of your main ingredients. Nice. And I, I think sometimes people misunderstand when I you know, highlight the importance of shredded leaves. And maybe I do that because I've, I've lived all my life in the Northeast and mid-Atlantic and I've always had access to lots of deciduous trees. And in, in truth, most of our listeners and, and viewers do. But when you get down to Southern California, down to Florida, down to Southern Texas, I mean, you're you're jonesing for that brown material that makes a great outdoor compost pile. And one of the things I tried to stress in that TED talk is the only thing you don't want to do is pile up a lot of food scraps outside. Because in that kind of situation, the food scraps are not going to make good compost and they're going to attract vermin which neither mm-hmm. neither one is what you want. Now, I have in my home on my porch, which is insulated and stays warm in the winter, a worm bin, and I love my wormies. I've had my worm bin for about 10 years, and the only thing I regret is not getting it 10 years earlier. Um, the one I have is called the Worm Tower, and it's a series of stackable trays. Each tray holds a fair amount of material. For me, it's about a week's worth of garbage. Now, when I grew up in Philly, there were two things you put outside that you didn't want anymore. There was trash, which was dry, and all your wet stuff from your kitchen was garbage. And believe it or not, that went into a slop can in the alley out back, and pig farmers used to collect it uh, Mm. to feed to to their pigs. Uh, So it was one of the earliest recycling Projects. So we grew up calling kitchen waste garbage, and that's not trash that you put out at the curb. Anyway, you layer uh, one of these trays, which has holes in the bottom, you know, it's like a grate, uh, with garbage, and then you cover the garbage with shredded newspaper. It's the absolute best bedding for the worms. And then you put it onto this worm tower. And at some point, obviously, you have to get the composting worms, the red wigglers that work these indoor worm bins. Although with you, in your climate, your worm bin could be outdoors as long as you protected it from excessive heat in the summertime. So so a lot of times, like if you buy a worm bin mail order or online or something like that, They'll send you the worms separately when it's safe to ship them. Or you can buy them locally. Or if you know anybody like me who has a worm bin, they reproduce like worms. So I would give you all the worms you wanted. And then because it's a stackable tray system, you're always having a tray for fresh garbage. And by the time you finish up the last tray, the first one is compost. The first one is beautiful worm castings that you can either set aside to dry Or in your climate, again, put on your outside plants at any time of the year. Now, you mentioned something for $20 you can put on your countertop. The only thing I can think of that fits that description would be a, quote, compost crock, uh, a ceramic crock that holds the kitchen material uh, for the first couple of days until you're ready to, you know, take it outside if you have a sealed compost bin with leaves in it or take it to your worm bin. But are you talking about something for 20 bucks that they think will safely compost food waste? No,
1: it's just storage.
0: Oh, okay. Well, that so, is that's also essential. You know, because you'll be at the at the kitchen counter, you'll be cleaning your strawberries, you'll be taking the brown leaves off your lettuce, you'll be Chopping the stalks off your broccoli, and it's a great to have that crock to drop all that stuff in, along with any coffee grounds and tea bags. Um, but with the tea bags, if you're using a worm bin, there's one interesting thing to remember: if there's a staple in the tea bag system, you got to take that off because otherwise, you, mm-hmm. could, you could hurt your wormies. But that's where you, but would...
1: you for the for the worm composting. Do you think it's worth investing in it? Or oh my goodness, like having. You... Like, how expensive would you say? Because I'm trying to start, I mean, not try. We have a garden club at our school, and I'm trying to, you know, compost So for our plants. Like, would it be better just to do hot composting, especially with the amount of sun we get, or to invest in one of the worm towers?
0: Okay, so for true composting, which is piling something up or putting it in a bin and having it turn into rich black soil, you need a majority of brown material. Now, mm-hmm. where you are, do you have a lot of palm trees around, or are you not that far south? Yes, you yes. do have, we have a lot. Plenty
1: of palm trees, yeah. And
0: yes. and you see when they trim them yearly, a tremendous amount of brown material comes to the ground, mm-hmm. that the old browned out palm leaves. That's your best resource. If you have a method of collecting and shredding them, then yes, you can compost your food waste in an outdoor bin that would be sealed. Um, in schools, for instance, one of the most popular ways to do this is they have a local woodworker build a giant wooden box with a heavy lid to keep out raccoons and mice. Yeah, and I think I
1: saw some of those Yeah, online.
0: And then you can do both. You can either have that just composting, making sure that you know 80%, 75% is brown material, and the rest is your kitchen waste. Um, And you could also introduce worms into that. It wouldn't hurt. But if you just want to do the kitchen waste, you would still do the layering. But, you know, instead of the worm tower, if you have an enormous amount of food, um, you would layer kitchen waste. You would layer shredded newspaper, introduce the worms, keep the mixture moist, and then keep adding new material to the top. And during the season, during the school year, the kids can actually go out and play with the worms. Um, you know, they can move the, the material around. They can see the worms. They can see that the stuff on the bottom doesn't look like the stuff on the top again. And it's a little more difficult to harvest the bottom when, uh, when the compost is finished, the worm castings are finished. But if you're following the school year, you could probably carry this thing all the way through the end of school. And then when the kids are out of school, you can, you know, take off the cu- top couple of layers. And then underneath is going to be beautiful worm compost. Just spread those around the plants at the school. But I, I want to specify here that I'm talking about raw materials, not, not leftovers, not, not bread, not cheese, not sandwiches oh, yeah. with meat. This is all um, pre-leftover stage from the kitchen prep, which is an enormous amount of food, but only, only really raw material. To compost leftovers, like in a college cafeteria or a school cafeteria like yours, you have to get into very sophisticated systems to do it safely.
1: For the storage of the kitchen, Do you think it's safe to also store in, like, a plastic bag or something more inexpensive?
0: If you're talking about the waste from the school cafeteria, say, um, where they'd be chopping up enormous amounts of lettuce and broccoli and stuff like that, you would get a galvanized trash can to put in there with a locking lid. You could even um, line the bottom with a couple of inches of shredded newspaper to keep it nice and dry and sanitary and then pour all of that into the worm bin because you're always going to add newspaper anyway but again leftovers are a whole different situation for that you'd want to talk to state officials and the municipality and see if there's uh, a company that's doing that or somebody would really have to go to class and learn how to do that correctly you know because there's salt there's meat there's cheese there's all this different stuff in there
1: thank you very much my pleasure
0: you take care all right, as promised, it's time for the question of the week, which we're calling Don't Trash Those Holiday Plants. Hey, Mike, I hate to see millions of potted poinsettias get trashed this time of year. I suppose they can be composted, but is there any way to perennialize them? And what about cut Christmas trees? It's sad to see them rolling down the street on trash day like festive tumbleweeds. Thanks. I'm a fraud. Anytown, USA. Okay. Okay. So it's not a real listener question. It's not my fault if you people don't know what to ask. My other options this week were how to grow lupins, what to do with too many eggshells, and explaining why somebody's melons turned out to be pumpkins. It's weeks like this that make me wonder if I should have found honest work. Nah. Anyway, there really are millions of poinsettias out there being relegated to the dung heap, and that's a darn shame, as these plants are much more interesting than people think and you can only see how interesting they are if you save and grow them out. Yeah, I know that many people have already trashed theirs, but there are plenty of folks out there who put such things off. For instance, I learned years ago that once you get to September, you can claim your Christmas lights are up early instead of admitting that you never took them down. Okay, the poinsettia rescue plan. Take that stupid foil off the pot, sit the pot in the sink with a couple inches of water in it for an hour or two, to let it get fully hydrated, drain it in the dish rack, and then put it someplace with the best light you can manage that isn't on a windowsill that gets freezing cold at night or near a hot air vent. These things come fully fertilized, but if you have access to some compost, worm castings, or a gentle organic liquid fertilizer, you can give it a light feeding next month. If it likes that, continue feeding once a month. Oh, and do the water thing once or twice a week, depending on the humidity in your home. Now don't worry if it doesn't grow much at all right now. Your goal is to just keep it alive until all chance of frost is gone and nighttime temps stay reliably in the 50s, exactly the same as tomato planting time. Do not rush this part. Although they have weirdly become a symbol of Christmas, poinsettias are tropical plants native to Mexico. Like tomatoes, they have no sense of humor about chilly nights, much less freezing cold ones. When conditions are right, Take the poinsettia outside. Ideally, plant it in the ground in well-drained soil that gets good sun. If you have to keep it in a pot, move it up into one twice the original size. Then watch. As the summer progresses, the plant will revert to its true form, which is large with multiple branches. The poinsettias sold over the holidays have been heavily pruned and trained to have that distinctive but false shape we all know so well. Then, at the end of the summer, you can either be done with your experiment or bring it in as a houseplant again once the nights start to get cold. You can even make the centers of the now multiple-headed plant color up by giving it 12 hours of bright light and 12 hours of darkness every day for a month or two. Good luck with that. But you can also just keep the darn thing alive again over winter and plant it outside again the following summer. It's well worth the effort. Lots of people will be curious about that great weird plant in your garden. All right, other holiday plants Norfolk pines. They're not pines of any kind and are native to an island near New Zealand, not Norfolk, Virginia they must also be treated as house plants whenever nighttime temps drop below the 50s as house plants they like a light loose growing medium most sources specify a one-third compost one-third potting soil and one-third sharp sand or perlite their care also requires you to follow the always difficult advice to keep the soil mix moist without overwatering, and place the plant in bright but indirect light again Good luck with that. Now, brown tips are common on this plant in dry homes over the winter and can be avoided by misting the plants in the morning. Most people keep them inside year-round, but you'll get a fuller tree. They are real trees that grow very tall in the wild if you put it outside in the summer. But in dappled shade, never direct sun. Old cut Christmas trees. Instead of putting them out by the curb, consider taking it to the backyard and hanging lots of suet feeders on it. Wild birds love the suet in the winter, and the tree provides shelter for them and protection from predators while they feed. Or use loppers or a bow saw to remove all the branches and then layer these cut boughs over top of overwintering pansies or around acid-loving plants that have fragile root systems like azaleas and rhododendrons. Not sure what you can do with the trunk. Maybe save it till spring and claim it's a maple. Well, that sure was some fun stuff to do with otherwise seriously sad plants, now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, the Question of the Week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over in detail, just click the link for the Question of the Week at our website, which is still and will always be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest Question of the Week at the Garden's Alive website. Yikes, my producers threatened to poach my poinsettia if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 1-833-727-9588 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. And don't worry about it, you'll find all of this new contact information at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org, where you'll also find the answers to many of your garden questions audio of this show, video of this show, and our podcast. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda McGrath. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Tavia Minnick works the phones. Our website wonder is Anastasia Weckerly. Jazzy Jonas Bowen is our audio editor. Kelly Hurd and Jake Boyer are our video editors. Our floor manager, John DeSantis, has a complete collection of Mego action figures, including the hard to find Martian Manhunter with the cape. We know this because John has a sweatshirt that says so. Harassed and harried Javier Diaz is our director, might be our producer, and used to enjoy gardening before I came to work here. Regal Ron Ruscha is our director of underwriting. Our marketing madman is jaunty Jim McDonald. Andy Cummins makes the equipment work overtime. Zach the Tack is in the house. Our CEO, Tim Fallon, still insists he is not our executive producer. But we can't be sure because... He's late for a meeting. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and yes, I have left my Christmas lights up all year. Heck, back in the 90s, I used the same tree two years in a row. Looks better the first year. On the other hand, Linus did drop by the second year to say he never thought it was such a bad tree. Hmm, come to think of it, that's the year I started losing my hair. Oh well, whether Lucy finally lets me kick the football or not. I'll see you again next week.